You're going to see behind me a graphic, and you're going to see a word, and that word is calibrated. Calibrated. You're going to hear that word said over and over and over all the way through December, up to December, as we go through the book of Titus. Let me give you a definition, a Webster actually, definition of calibration or calibrated. It means this, to standardize something such as a measuring instrument by determining, determining the deviation from a standard so as to ascertain the proper correction factors or to adjust precisely for a particular function. Calibrated, and you see under that, a church that works. In life, calibration is happening all over the place, especially as technology increases, as the mechanical and technical things that we are dealing with every single day. Talk to anyone who works with machinery or anything like that, they'll just tell you the importance of calibration. And to be uncalibrated in instruments or tools or machinery means it's going to be dangerous, means it's going to cost money, which means it's going to not work properly and things are going to make a mess. One little thing being off can take a, make a mess all the way down the line. Let me give you some examples. You know your phone that we have, touchscreen. That touchscreen has to be calibrated. And if you've ever had a touchscreen that's uncalibrated when you try to type on it or press something, maybe you try to hit this app, but it hits this one over here, right? Anybody like that? Anybody like when you're trying to use your phone, it's supposed to function in a certain way and produce a certain thing? It doesn't, right? It has to be calibrated. It's, it could mean the difference between texting to your spouse, I love you, honey, and who, who do you think you are? <laughs> oh, babe, I did not mean that. My calibration on my phone is off. Now, that would be a sick joke if someone had calibrated your phone to type that in when you type in I love you or something like that. Calibration is important. Let's get a little more serious with it. Imagine, imagine the instruments on an airplane, the calibration being off as far as the gauges and things like that. You can understand or think about why that would be so important or why that would be disastrous or dangerous. Real life example, I was talking to my dad here recently and he was reminding me of a story of locally of a restaurant that had closed down because of some turkey that it cooked and a man ended up dying as a result of undercooked turkey. And when they did their investigation, they found out that the, the oven that said that it was cooking at 400 and something degrees was actually cooking at 250 degrees and they served undercooked turkey. Why? Because the calibration of the machinery was off and it went unnoticed. And then the product or the, the fruit of that that was given was undercooked disastrous. So, so as we think through this, this illustration of calibration, we talk about being calibrated. You're going to hear more and more stories as the weeks go on. Hear us giving illustrations. Hopefully this sticks in your mind. And when you think about the word calibrated, you begin to think about a church needs to be calibrated to a certain standard. What is that standard? This. And then I would go even further. Our foundation here at Summit is Jesus Christ the word of God? So not what is the standard, who is the standard? Now, let me ask you this. What is the church? And you know that it would be better if I asked a question. Who is the church? We all raise our hand. It's the people. It's the individuals together under their common faith in Jesus Christ who have been saved and who have been called to a very, very specific purpose Scripture says this, that God has predestined you to be conformed 
to the image of his son. You see the illustration of calibration there? Calibrated to the image of Jesus. Jesus being the head of the church, the standard who walked and who lived by the word of God and did not, even though tempted in every way and suffered in every way as we are, never sinned being the standard by which our lives are to be calibrated to and God sending his word out into the world to help the churches all over to say, hey, I'm looking for a church that works. Now, let me talk about that subtitle. I'm gonna make a, an assumption here, an assumption that when pastors get up or a pastor gets up or you hear a sermon and you hear something like this, a church that works, there's probably a check in your spirit that says something about that doesn't sound right. I could be wrong, but I know if I were sitting where you are and I heard that, I, a radar would be going off. A radar that would say, wait a minute, when I think about the word works, I think about dead works, and I think about the New Testament and Paul and many going through great links to show that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone, and that works seem to become like a bad word in the Bible, and so, and so the legalism is a problem, and, and there are many people trying to work their way to heaven. We don't work our way to heaven, so when you say a church that works, Jasper, I have to admit, I have a, a, a hesitation with that. Is there anybody else who feels that way as well? You hear that, a little bit of that goes off, a little radar that goes off, okay. One of the things the enemy does is he takes things that are good and he loves, loves to make us feel bad. Most of us to make wrong inclusions about it. Good works are good, especially for God's church. And we have to, in the book of Titus, one of the reasons we feel led to do this is to bring our understandings as a, as a church back to understand what good works are, what they're not, and why we should be excited about them. And as you're going to see in the book of Titus, why we should be devoted to them and not associate this type of work we're talking about with the bad type of work of trying to work our way to heaven. Let me show you this just through the book of Titus. I want to read you some verses. Chapter 1. Paul says this to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Calibration still needs to happen in these churches. Later in chapter one, he talks about people who need to be silenced, who are insubordinate. Their life, their manner of life isn't calibrated, and they need to be silenced so that they may be found sound in the faith or else avoided. But then he begins, and he introduces in chapter one, this word works, and he continues to repeat it through the rest of the book. He says, concerning this bad example, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He says later in chapter two, teach what accords with sound doctrine, talking about older men, younger men, older women, younger women, that they would show themselves, starting with Titus, then working its way down to the examples of those in the church, the older to the younger, show themselves in all respects to be a model of good works. He says later, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Then we're told, Paul telling Titus, a pastor, in extension telling all pastors, remind them so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Then he says later in chapter three, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, let me show you also in the book of Titus, if you wanna to turn to chapter three with me really quick, 
how the same book that repeats good works over and over and over and over as a good thing does not mean the type of work that triggers a response in us that makes us think of legalism or the bad types of works. Because chapter three, he reminds us of this. Chapter three, look at uh, verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own glory, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us ritually through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then he says, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I think a trend... A trend that happens throughout all of church history is the pendulum swing, right? You have times of history where this idea of the grace of God, grace alone is, is emphasized, and then you, you, see, you see kind of a, an overemphasis of it where it's unbalanced, and then you see the church of God begins to live in what's called licentiousness or free living. Because of the grace of God, we can live however we want to. It doesn't matter our manner of life because our soul has been rescued. And you see scripture come in to try to grab that pendulum and, and swing it back to the middle, not back to the other side, which would be legalism, which would be you have to work. What you wear, what you dress, it goes so far to determine like every area of our life has to be a certain way in order to be saved. That's not the gospel either, but neither is this. The gospel is not by works of righteousness done in yourself have you saved yourself. God saved you because of his mercy and because he loved you. He's taking care of your soul. Now your life exists to be conformed to the image of his son so you can make the impact that Jesus made for you on the world. I want you to do the same thing my son did, but that takes your life being transformed. And, and the good works of the scripture are all the things that Jesus and the scriptures tell us that we need to be devoted to and we need to do in honor of the Lord and for the sake of those around us who are still in darkness. There is a very particular purpose. And so we want to be a church that works. It's a double entendre, both in function and fruit. If you say something doesn't work, you can mean two things by it. We mean both. If a church is not working, what we mean is it's not being who it's meant to be, which means its manner of life has been given over and conformed to the world, and it's not producing what it's meant to produce, which is others coming to faith as well because they've heard the gospel and seen it in us. So the function's off and the fruit is off. A calibrated church, we're going to start this morning, starts with calibrated leadership. A calibrated church starts with calibrated leadership. Jesus being the head, being the model, who then passed it to the apostles, and the apostles began to pass it to other people, and then they carry it on. And we here, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, are the benefactors of that type of devotion in leaders' lives before us who devoted themselves to good works to grow and protect and build the church. Scripture telling us that the church of God is this buttress of truth. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. 
calibrated leadership, uh, churches start with calibrated leadership. In the first four verses, you're going to see Paul introduce himself before he starts to talk to Titus. He's going to say a little bit about himself, and he's going to be our example this morning. But I want to, I want to, I want to teach you about uh, the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, and kind of what's going on here. If you think of date, when was this book written? This is actually later in Paul's life. It may have been the second to last letter that's written. We believe that it's written right before 2 Timothy, so sometime in the, in the 60s, not the 1960s, but the 60s, 62 to 63 AD, Paul is known to probably die in 64 or 65 AD. Paul goes to Rome. The first time he gets imprisoned, he gets out, eventually makes his way to the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean, right? It's above Africa, below Europe. It's like right there in the midst of the sea, kind of maybe like 2,000 miles away from Israel. So if this is Israel, you see the coast. Crete's over here. It's this little island here. This is the first time Paul or any of the disciples, as far as we know, made it to the island of Crete. And then when he's writing this letter, he's telling Titus, I want you to stay there. We went there together. I want you to stay there because I need you to put what remained into order. So history tells us doing some good uh, uh, detective work or inferring, we believe that what happened was way back when, 30-something years later, when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, it said people from every nation had come to gather that day. Peter preaches this great message. That's when the Holy Spirit descends upon them. The Holy Spirit begins to live in every believer's lives. And you have all these people who get saved from this great sermon. And then they go back to their homes. Some of those people would have been Jews who came from the island of Crete. And they brought the gospel back to the island of Crete. So when Paul shows up on his missionary journeys, going about trying to preach later in his life, he finds there are churches already in or on the island of Crete. But these churches have no leadership. Simply the gospel message of a few people being saved have come back, brought it back to their hometown, and it has begun to produce fruit, as it does because the gospel grows. But Paul notices something. Man, these churches, are, are, their calibration is way off. Way off. Because they haven't had the leadership, which is God's intention, and pastors to lead them and guide them and teach them sound doctrine and keep them in the way and be the bumpers like on the, uh, the bowling alley to, to keep us on the right path of conformity to the image of God's son being devoted to good works. And so, Titus, your life for the indefinite future is going to be living on this island to help these churches. Now, the island of Crete, maybe you've heard the word a Cretan. I mean, here we are thousands of years later. Still, there's this word that can be used in conversation where you might call someone a Cretan, and that comes all the way back to the reputation that the people on this island had. Paul's going to tell us, he's going to tell Titus in chapter 1, he's going to say this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. What a reputation, one that has endured all uh, generations, it seems, where now you call someone a Cretan, you mean you liar, you debaucherous person, right? Because they had a reputation, these people of a very selfish, lying, thinking only about themselves type people that you could not trust, always taking advantage of each other. Whew. 
and the churches apparently that had been there without leadership had kind of lost their way. They forgot what they were supposed to be devoted to. They forgot that their manner of life counted, that, 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 being, that walking in wisdom toward outsiders actually matters, and I believe they began to become conformed to the world. Paul comes up and he says, hey, here's the people who have faith. They believe in Jesus, but their manner of life is way off. Let's calibrate these churches. Okay, so we're gonna start. You with me? Introduction, there's a lot there calibrated a church that works. Paul the Apostle is our first example. He starts with himself, and Paul the Apostle being the example that we can look to of what a calibrated life looks like. Read verses one through four with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in a hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I want you to see a few things. First thing is this. Paul is the calibrated example, and he, we see first and foremost that he's calibrated in his identity. Paul knew exactly who he was. Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, and then he, tells, tells, he gives himself two titles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, if you were gonna write a letter to someone or write a letter to anyone and you were to write your name first and then give yourself an identity, what would it be? One, I want to know, do you, I want to know if there even is an identity in you. Do you have a confident understanding of who you are? Identity. I write, I know exactly who I am. Paul calls himself by name, his new name, by the way, the name that Jesus gave him, no longer Saul, but Paul. And then he calls himself a servant of God. Let's look at that one first. Paul was calibrated in his identity, knew exactly who he was. He calls himself a servant. That's the word doulos, which literally means slave. He belonged to, he was owned by God, a slave of God. I think that's one of those words today, you say it in our culture, and it immediately, kind of like works, it immediately makes you think of a horrible, bad example. But I want to refocus us a little bit, get away from the, the pre-understandings that we bring to this, and think about it like this. This is more a statement about who his master is, more so the fact that he's a slave, because the reality is every single one of us on planet earth, whether we believe in Jesus or not, are a slave. There's no such thing as, as freedom of the soul. The soul is either owned by sin or it's owned by God. Paul even reminds them of this in chapter three. We read it earlier. He says, he says this, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
You could be the greatest anarchist of all time, uh, remove yourself from every bit of authority. You could live your life in the total freedom of doing exactly what you want to do and never realize the whole time you've been a slave to the very things that you want to do. Your passions and your pleasures are ruling your heart and the thing that's fueling it or the one that's fueling it is the enemy and the demons that are against you shoveling the coal into your heart to keep the fire of your passions alive and keeping you a slave to the very things that will destroy your soul. Never even know it. All in, the, all in the moment, screaming, freedom, I'm not a slave. Paul understood, no, we're all slaves, but he understood he had a different master. He had a master that was actually the best master to have, the one, the one who would actually treat him with all grace and mercy and who would lead him and give him commands that would be the best thing for him and the best thing for others. This is a very biblical doctrine. And again, the enemy wants us to not be able to think about things this way because he wants us to associate it with horrible things and come to conclusion, no, I shouldn't think of myself as a slave. Yes, you should. The Bible wants you to. God uses this language and this imagery because he wants you to think of this. Who are you a slave to? What are you a slave to? Romans 6 says, do you not know that whoever you present your members to, you are slaves to that, whether of sin leading to death or of righteousness leading to life in God. How do you know what you're a slave to? It's whatever you yield to. Whatever you say, hey, I'm yours, have your way with me. And the problem of mankind is that we wake up and we say, hey, desires and passions, do with me what you will. Paul knew who he was. He was a slave, but he had a new master. But then he says this, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle simply means sent one or a messenger. And in a sense, we all have the identity of being messengers of God. We must carry this good news into the world. But he had a very particular, very special, reserved position that only those that Jesus commissioned had. There no longer are apostles in the sense of Paul being an apostle. The disciples, the ones that Jesus commissioned and sent out into the world a very particular purpose to lay down their lives and to eventually die or be, be cast out and exiled and to lay their life down to plant the church, to teach the church with all authority what God was teaching them to give to them. And you see in the book of Acts, the church starts and what do they devote themselves to? To the apostles teaching and fellowship, and breaking of bread. This is why now someone comes along today and they say, well, I'm apostle of such and such church down the road. They don't understand what they're saying. If they're using the word apostle in the sense of I'm simply a messenger that's carrying the gospel, sure. But when they use it as the title of the authoritative one of God who's able to bring authority to the churches and bring new revelation that's from God, then I have a problem. And by the way, there is no more new revelation we're waiting on, we have it all. Paul himself in Galatians says, if anyone comes to you, even an angel, even myself, and brings to you a different message than the one that I originally brought to you, let him be accursed. And so Paul, trying to protect churches, plant people like Titus to protect churches because there's constantly, as we're gonna see through the book of Titus, constantly people coming from without and from within that are being used by the enemy to pull people's faith away and deteriorate it. And you need leadership 
that's calibrated, that's godly, that cares more about what God wants than any other person on the planet that will devote themselves to the good works and the slander and the scrutiny and the critique of whoever it is, but for the sake of the church, lay their lives down for people and keep them on the path to the conformity to God's word and his son because this is what's best for people and this is what good leaders do and this is what Paul devoted himself to. Paul was calibrated in his identity. He knew exactly who God created him to be. A child of God should never say, I don't know who I am. Are you here this morning listening to me? And as you're hearing this, you're thinking like, man, if you were to ask me, who am I? I would say, I don't know. I would say this, I would then ask you, well, do you you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and that he's Lord? Have you confessed him as your Lord, which again is master? If you said yes, then you do know who you are. It sounds to me like the world has crept in and made you think about identity in a wrong way. Your identity is you belong to the God who bought you, as the scripture says, with a price, not of gold and silver, but with his own blood, he purchased you, redeemed you. That means you were locked in a prison of sin and he paid the price to be able to pull you out of that and bring you out of darkness into light and you belong to him. Don't you think and know that knowing you are that person, you belong to him and a child of God and are adopted has an impact on your life? Absolutely. And one of the greatest things I see happening in young people today is identity crisis. And it leads to this existential nihilism where kids have no idea who they are and they think there's no purpose or point to trying, which leads then to depression, which leads to the very goal the enemy has come to do to kill, steal, and destroy, right? All of these happening within the heart and the mind of people. You need leaders who will come and tell you what your identity is and what it should be if it's not and who you are in Christ and how good it is to belong to him and to serve him and to be his, Do you know who you are? And maybe you're here and you're like, I, even with you saying that, I still don't know who I am. You come talk to one of us. Don't live in darkness with nothing but a big question mark on your life. That'll affect you more than you realize. Maybe you do realize it because your emotions are wrecked. And you need some hope. I'm telling you, the gospel has it. Paul knew who he was. He was also calibrated in this. He was calibrated in his mission Not only did he know exactly who he was, he knew exactly what God created him to be doing and to be devoted to, what his purpose was, what his mission was. It was clear in Paul's mind. He says this, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is where it gets deep, church, super deep. So we we need to be looking at the scripture together and then walk through this together. He says this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. I, I, okay, show me the mission that Paul's seeing in this. Well, we're gonna focus on a few words, but I wanna break it down in this way, first and foremost. You know exactly what God created him to do. The first thing we see was to bring people to the faith. He says this, I'm a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that word for, right, transition, for the sake of, the benefit of, because of, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I am who I am, one, because God's made me that way, but also I have a very specific purpose and duty that I'm devoting myself to. I care very much about the faith of people, 
And so I'm going to be obedient to God and I'm going to be a messenger of the gospel for the sake of the faith. And then he says, God's elect. Later after Titus, he writes to Timothy. Let me read you a verse in 2 Timothy, which is the the letter right before Titus. He says this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This guy has a pretty awesome mission, doesn't he? I want you to think about this calibrated leader who cares so much about people coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior that he was willing to endure anything. And his life proved it as he suffered beatings and being arrested and ultimately being executed, all for the sake, one, of the glory of God, but because people need to know that Jesus is Lord And the only way salvation will be obtained is through hearing the message and believing faith because it can't be done by works of righteousness. It has to come through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord risen from the dead. And so Paul said, my mission is to bring people to the faith for the sake of the faith. And he says this, God's elect some very huge providential sovereign things being said here. Think about it like this. You hear the term of lost sheep. It's like Paul had, had this understanding that God's people are out there. They're lost. They need to hear, but they will not become saved and God's people until they hear. So every time he had a chance to, to preach and proclaim publicly or even in private, he knew there was a chance this could be one of God's elect. And if they hear and believe, then one of God's people been saved and I've accomplished one more step, one of the mission of bringing God's people back to him. The message goes out to the whole world. God is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. But we know that there are many who will not repent. Those who do, those who come to the faith and who believe are God's people and they're out there and they need to hear the gospel. There is no other way to salvation except through hearing the message and believing. So Paul devoted himself to that for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And the fact that we sit here with faith is, is a testimony to the fact that people suffered in order to have that message reach us here even many years later. God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will continue to grow. I, I want to be the type of person like Paul for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Secondly, this, he was calibrated in mission that he brought people to the faith, but he built people up in the knowledge of truth. Not only did he evangelize, but he edified. He says this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, T-H, the truth, the gospel, that which is actually truth, the truth that Jesus came to reveal about himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And the problem is all of the world is finding their own truth, trying to do it their own way. And the scripture is trying to open their eyes to see to go your own way is to go the path of death. The only way that will lead to life is to turn from your own way and come to the truth, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Peter tells churches to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. 
one of the goals of the, the pastor, the leader of the church is, yes, your faith has to be strengthened and built up, and it can only be built up through the increasing and in the understanding of the knowledge of the truth. Paul prayed to the Ephesians, I just, I pray on behalf of you that God would open the eyes of your heart to do what? To understand even deeper the truth that you rejoice in. It goes far deeper. If you think it's exciting now, you should wait and give it time as you learn and grow and let God open your eyes to how deep these truths and these wonders go. And so Paul knew, not only am I evangelizing, bringing people to faith, but their faith needs to be built up with the same truth that saved them. Now look at this next comma, this next word. Knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. What does that mean? Man, Paul's like the master of these run-on sentences. He just keeps going. Building people up in the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. Think about it like this. How do you know what the knowledge of the truth is? Well, you know the, the knowledge of the truth is going to lead to a life that's godly. What does godly mean or godliness mean? It means a life devoted to God. It goes kind of like back up to Paul's view of himself. I'm a slave. He's my master. I, I'm a servant. I'm going to do what he wants to do. I want my life, my thoughts, my speech, everything to be conformed to him and to honor him and glorify him. And I care now about things of the Lord that before I knew him, I did not. So when you look into a church, and he's going to show this, you look into a church, Titus, you look at the churches that are here in Crete. There are many in the churches that actually need to be silenced and they're not saved. And they think that they are. They, as he says, let me just read it. They profess, the end of chapter one, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're not of the fold. They profess it with their mouth, but you know that they have not come to the knowledge of faith and been built up in the knowledge of truth because their life doesn't accord with godliness. The gospel changes you because God has a purpose. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. And then he also gives us promise to all of God's people. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It is a guarantee that if you believe in Jesus, you've come to his faith, he will grow you. And God's ability to grow you, even as you're fighting against him, is far greater. You will grow. You will turn into the image of Jesus. Your whole life will be growth. Your whole life will be turning into Jesus if you truly are his. And so as years and years and years and years go by and your life looks less like him, it's a life that's disobedient, insubordinate, detestable. It's divisive. It doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. Your life proves that you haven't been brought to the faith and built up in the knowledge of truth. And so there's still hope for you though, as long as you're alive, repent and come to faith and let the spirit begin to work in you. Build people up with the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, goes right along with it. And then thirdly, this, his mission, he knew exactly what God wanted him to do, bring people to faith, build people up. But then this, bolster people's hearts with real hope. The knowledge of a truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lives, promised before the ages began. Do you know what the church of God needs all the time, every day? Leaders who will constantly, constantly be bringing to them what's of most, utmost importance, your faith, which the enemy is trying to destroy. Never give on that. To grow you in the knowledge of the truth 
but then also to bolster and encourage you because life is hard and it's filled with with suffering and temptation and there are plenty of reasons to discourage you and beat you down and make you forget the wonders of the truth and the glories of the hope of eternal life that awaits for all of God's children. And you need someone to remind you of that because we're all in this together and life is hard. Jesus said, in this life you'll have tribulation, but, but what, he doesn't leave it there, does he? But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so Paul says to Titus, in hope of eternal life, also noting that this, this message is not personal, both to be read publicly for these people so they'll see what he's charging Titus to do and how he's charging Titus to lead them, but they're also learning as well as they read this letter. Now here we are reading this letter. The hope of eternal life. You know, the ladies are going through 1 Peter and I'm jealous. The guys are gonna laugh because I'm always talking about 1 Peter. It's always already become a joke. If I say a verse, they're like, well, let me guess, 1 Peter, right? I love the book of 1 Peter. Why do I love the book of 1 Peter? Because it is a book about going through life with the right perspective of who you are. You're a stranger, you're an alien, this place is not your home, heaven is your home, and life, it's hard. And Paul, Peter, right off the bat, before he says anything else, he reminds them of the great, wonderful inheritance that's waiting on them. An inheritance in heaven, undefiled, unfading, unperishable, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in the praise and the honor and the glory and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So on your time here, Peter then emphasizes if you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness sake. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Either way, life's filled with suffering. Let it be worth it. And you keep your eyes on what awaits you and what God has promised you, and the reality that everything that is undesirable that you experience here on earth is temporary. It's gonna fade away. The end of 1 Peter, he talks about resist the devil and he will flee from you. If necessary, it's hard for a little while, but in the right time, at the proper time, God himself will restore, establish, and strengthen you. Endure, wait, but what you need is the reminder and the encouragement of why you're doing what you're doing. Right? Like, like what's happened in your marriage? What's happening with your kids? What's happening at your job? What's happening in your health? Right? You can see how these things pull your eyes off the summit, put your eyes on the trees around you, fill you with anxiety and fear. Why though has God put you in these situations and what is God using your life and your testimony and your life for in these situations? It is accomplishing something far greater than you could imagine and the pain you're going through in those moments are worth it. It's worth it. Be the example that these areas of your life need to see. And you can get through it by being thankful and keeping your eyes on the glory that awaits you that is eternal in these temporal moments. Titus 2, verse 11. This is the one we've asked you to memorize. So notice Paul sharing his mission. Build people up, bring people to the faith. It starts with salvation increase their knowledge of the truth, build them up in the truth. Their life is, is growing and becoming more godly in the present age and then encourage them with what they're waiting for. Look what Paul says in chapter two, which we've asked you 
to memorize and see if you can see this pattern. Chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people for the sake of the faith of God's elect, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, building up your knowledge of the truth. Conforming your life to godliness. And what is the very thing that's training you to live like Jesus now? Guess what? It's not the law. He started out the grace of God. brings salvation and it trains you. The same thing that saves you is the same thing that trains you to renounce the wicked ways in your life and to live presently godly as an example. Now look at the hope that happens after this waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous good works. Waiting, we're waiting on something. What is it? The blessed hope that's coming. Church, Paul was a calibrated leader, knew who he was, knew exactly what God wanted him doing. And then finally this, he was calibrated in his ministry. He knew exactly how God wanted him to do it. So he says this, in hope of eternal life, verse two, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. If you spend time reading through the epistles and Paul's description of himself, some of the things that he says about himself are remarkable and how he viewed himself, but also as he revealed what he had been tasked to do. Very specific. Not, we, we're not called, God didn't call us to be Paul. Paul, Peter, and the rest of the apostles were, were called to be the, the first fruits, the ones who established the church and they spilt their own blood for it, just like Jesus and now we carry on and learn from their example and carry on the same mission, even here today. Hasn't changed. Paul understood what his ministry was, though. How do you want me to do this, God? Let's look at it really quick. One, look what he says about God. God never lies, promised before the ages began. This message, this word, this truth existed even before the heavens and the earth did. And there was a determination and eternity passed for these things to happen. And here they are taking place. It says, at the proper time, and God's timing, when he wanted to, manifested in his word. Spend time reading scripture. And the the progressive manifestation of the truth of God from the very beginning of time as God is enacting this plan to bring a Messiah, a Savior who would have the preeminence over the whole universe and heavens, who would be the Savior and who would solve the problem that we created in the beginning and deal with the enemy once and for all. Progressively manifested, and here we are, we have the full manifestation of God's written revelation. We have it in our hands right now. Man, like most of it's done. What are we waiting on? Jesus to return and deal with things once and for all, but he's giving time for people to repent. Paul said this, at the proper time manifested in his word through the what? Through the preaching. The word means proclamation. Ever since the beginning, God's prophets and his message coming out through the mouth, the words as God spoke 
The heavens and the earth were created. And now when we use our mouth to speak the words of God that the Holy Spirit has inspired for us to read, life is created when ears hear and hearts believe and souls are now wakened from dead life. We speak God has determined that preaching is the way. And preaching isn't just what I'm doing here. It's any time the gospel is proclaimed, but it must be proclaimed. It's not enough for nature and creation to bring people to God. All that tells people, according to Romans 1, is that wrath is coming because of the craziness we see in the animal killing kingdom and the violence and the crazy uh, uh, weather patterns that are destructive. All that does is tell people wrath is coming. They need to hear with the mouth and the proclamation of the word of God that Jesus is Lord. Paul understood that this was his ministry. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm under compulsion, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm gonna read one more thing and then we're gonna begin to close it up. 2 Timothy chapter one. Paul says this to Timothy. Writes to Titus, but he also writes to Timothy. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, church summit. Brothers, sisters, do you hear the call that's coming down through the apostle to Titus, to Timothy, to reach the churches, to hear that same power and message that's been entrusted to us now. But a calibrated church starts with a calibrated leadership. We need people like Paul the apostle. And as we're going to learn, one of the first things that Paul tells Titus to do is to plant elders in the towns, qualified, godly men who will carry on this message. Now the finger's pointed at your pastors, isn't it? As it should be. Church, do you know who you are? It being true is of utmost importance that you're a child of God. But the next thing is that you actually believe it. Because when your life is walked each day without, without believing or knowing because you're lacking the knowledge or you're listening to the voice of the enemy about who you are, what you should be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it, it will drive you crazy and it will lead to all types of internal struggles. As a child of God, you don't need to wonder who you are. You don't need to wonder what God wants you to do. But there may be a little creative question mark over, how does God want you to do it? You know it's gonna come through the gospel. 
but God has put me as a person very purposefully and specifically where I am in life, with the family that I am, with the friends that I'm in, in the job that I am, in the school that I am, to be a model of good works, to be a model of Jesus and light, and to live in that identity and not let the world suck you in to its hurricane and distort who you are. God be your light and your song over your heart that sings and uses you like he did the Apostle Paul and Titus and Timothy to bring a difference to this world, one that will reverberate through all of eternity. And why do we do it? Because he saved us and he is worth it and he has delivered us from an eternal death and brought us into eternal life. If I'm worth dying for, this God is worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are good, you are loving, you are kind, and your grace has reached us. I pray that you would help us as we read through this letter that though it was old concerning us, it is just as fresh and new for us here many years later and for every culture and generation that reads it fresh because it is alive and it's piercing into our hearts. God, you divide our thoughts from the wicked ones and the good ones and you would convict us to live for you for the rest of our days and help us to rest in the mercy and grace that's over us so we're not overcome with the sense of guilt and shame that you've wiped away, but you'd help us to move on to godliness because you're worth it. God, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.